I am a racialized woman. I am forever going to be advocating, whether that's for myself or for others like me. I have a child who will probably be with me forever. I will be advocating for him and with him for as long as I live. So I need to be able to sustain that energy. My advocacy is not flavor of the month. Welcome. I'm your host, Rohin Bajram. I'm on a mission to redefine the faces of leadership through speaking, consulting, and writing. Unspeakable Leadership is a space to reclaim our stories and empower each other to see the value in how we, as women of color, lead. I hope you'll join me on this journey of unpacking experiences, lessons learned, sharing laughs, and likely a tear or two. Let us grow together in conversation. Today, I get to speak with somebody who I just absolutely adore, admire, and continue to be inspired every single time that I'm not only in conversation with, but also get to really think about different ideas and what's happening in the world. Levon Abshire is a second-generation Filipina whose family immigrated to Canada in the 1960s. She understands the harm that colonization has had on her own family and place of origin and is committed to advancing Canada's truth and reconciliation calls to action, especially within health and education. Levon has over 20 years of leadership experience in K-12 schools, nonprofit organizations, and higher education. In her role as Director of Health Equity, Promotion, and Education at the University of British Columbia, Levon is responsible for strategic leadership in student health and well-being. In that role, she looks at the promotion of health, the prevention of illness, and the advancement of health equity across the institution. Levon is also a certified organizational coach and consultant and holds a Master's of Educational Administration and Leadership and a Certificate in Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. She is a disability advocate and an ally in her community, an avid volunteer and has lived experience as a mother of an autistic child. It is with great pleasure to be in conversation with you, Levon, and thank you so much for sharing your energy and your time. You are welcome, Rohin. I, I feel really honored and privileged to be invited to share a little bit about myself, my own you know, journey as a mother, but also as a professional and a leadership in the spaces that we work in. So just really happy to be here and, and make this time to connect with you. You know how much I enjoy chatting with you. <laughs> You are so kind. Uh, Thank you. I find every time that we connect, I take something away and I learn something new. I don't take that for granted. Mm. And I know that this time is is likely going to be no different. And so sort of with the first question that I've been asking every woman of color who I've had the pleasure and honor of speaking with, and that is, can you share with us a little bit about your leadership journey and what drives you in your work today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I think I spent the entire weekend trying to answer this question. I have uh, pages and pages of information in terms of what this means 
for me in my journey in leadership. And really, I've come to a place of understanding and embodiment of leadership that's evolved over the years. It's, It's really grounded in servant leadership. And it's found this way to wise compassion. I'm going to go into that a a bit more. You know, the journey is really influenced by my family, my family of origin, my culture, um, my positionality, and my faith. Um, And more so now, I think, you know, um, it's my calling as a mother of a racialized, autistic young teen and the journey that we've been on since his diagnosis in 2014 when he was three years old. So in terms of being grounded in servant leadership, it really is about putting others first. When I think about those first careers that I had being an educator, you know, I was 23, I had an eighth grade class, and all I wanted to do was just give them everything of myself, whether that was in my lesson planning or my teaching. But it it really was about wanting to, to put my students first and also their families first. And so when I reflect back on that, and think about where is that rooted? Where is this idea of being a servant as a leader? Where does that come from? Because it's almost contrary when we think about Western world and leadership and power and authority and, and hierarchy. Being a servant doesn't necessarily align with that definition of leadership. But it really is rooted in my faith. Growing up Catholic, going to Catholic school, just that idea of following the life of Christ and Jesus. I think that was instilled in me, but that really is connected to my family of origin. So I would say that servant leadership is deeply connected to my family of origin, having immigrant parents who came to Canada with not very much and still embodying parts of the Filipino culture What comes to mind for me is I think about being the eldest in my family, having parents who worked multiple jobs to make sure that we had a roof over our heads and had food on the table, and them entrusting me and holding me responsible to care for my brother and sister. I was like 10, 11, 12, and I was shuttling them to, you know, whether it was school or ballet class or swim class or hockey. I remember walking a couple of blocks with my brother's hockey bag just to take him to hockey practice. So it's really rooted in my family and our culture of being Filipino. There's this concept called Utang Naluog, it's a Tagalog, and it means duty and obligation to others. There is this a subliminal sort of principle that guides our way of life and how we interact with others. And as I think about that, my parents never talked about Utang Naluog, but you felt it. You felt this duty to others. And I saw that in their duty of serving others, whether it's family members or people in their community or us. And so I really did embody that. They didn't have to tell me to do it. It just, it became who I was. So, you know, my servant leadership is grounded in that and family and culture. And then when I think about where I am now, there's a little bit of that servant leadership, but Not as much as there used to be. I think I've become a little wise 
to the world <laughs> that we live in. And being a, a servant can be really exhausting and, and tiring. I've sort of adopted you know, a leadership style that is both wise and compassionate and compassionate, which is linked to servant leadership in that, you know, I deeply care about people. I can empathize with life being hard and life being hard, especially for those who are racialized and might have other marginalized identities. The wisdom piece though, Mm -hmm. has really come from, I would say the last 10 years of my life and that being, you know, including my time being a mom, being a working mom, being a working mom who's a leader, that wisdom is so necessary, so necessary for, you know, your ability to do your job well and be responsible to institutions and people that you are responsible for and to, but also to make those hard decisions. Because what I've noticed is in the roles of leadership that I continue to advance in, there are times when you have to make hard decisions, hard decisions Mm -hmm. that will impact people's feelings and emotions, hard decisions that will impact people's lives and livelihoods. But if you can make those hard decisions and be transparent about the care and compassion that you have towards the people you're leading, it just makes it a bit easier to rationalize, I'd say. I think I've shared a lot. Yeah, I'm going to summarize for you. That's the coach in me. Now I've transitioned to this wise, compassionate leader, all grounded in family and culture and life experience and much of that tied to the last two and 10 years. Being a mom to my kiddo, not any other, my kiddo. Levon, I I have a lump in my throat with just everything that you shared and just just the visual imagery of seeing this young 10-year-old Levon walking back and forth. Because when you said shuttle, I will admit the first thought that came to mind was, wait, could you drive at 10 years old? (laughs) And then I thought, no, you couldn't. So even the word that you use, shuttle, the signifies for me that it you weren't in a car you were likely walking picking up dropping off and really taking on such important adult responsibilities at, at such a young age that i think many immigrant families had to do i know i was definitely one of those as well when i immigrated here to canada and then the ability to stay grounded in your values that you've shared throughout your time of leading and then in the last 10 years of reflecting on who are you serving, how are you serving, and how are you able to make some of those boundaries. Those are such big things to have not only experienced and gone through, but to also reflect on and to make different choices. And and so I just wanted to acknowledge my gratitude with how important it is to hear from leaders like you and from many women of color to articulate the leadership journey isn't about titles. It isn't about roles. And even though, goodness gracious me, you and I have had multiple conversations about the importance of sometimes titles in these systems that we find ourselves in. But that isn't what actually drives us. It's the kind of work and the kind of impact that we often are involved in. 
Looking for a speaker at your next event? Let's talk. I'm curious. A big part of your bio, and also a big part of what I get to see when I get to work with you, is you take on such an incredibly important role of advocacy. My question for you is what principles help you to be able to define how to advocate and guide you? I, I think there are principles that definitely guide you know, my advocacy work and bringing in advocacy into my leadership. But more important than the principles are the life experiences that mm -hmm. I've had that allow me to feel and move in a way that works towards change for specific groups. I would say it's rooted in dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, if I think back to being young in my own youth, that feeling of worthiness, mm -hmm. the value that one has in the world that we live in, that feeling of belonging that everybody craves and wants. But at the heart of my advocacy is that, that people feel dignity, that they feel like they belong. For me, the opposite of dignity is shame. As much as we can, or as much as I can, support with reducing some of the shame that folks might feel, increasing some of the dignity and belonging that individuals might feel or are able to experience. That really does guide my work. And I think that's as a result of experiences of not feeling dignified, of having others exclude me, of having others make me feel ashamed of certain identities that I might hold. So my advocacy is rooted in the experiences that I've had and the desire and the belief that I have that everyone deserves to feel dignified and belong. And I would say in terms of mechanisms to support my advocacy, my work is really rooted in human rights. And I'll give you an example specific to being the mom of a kid who is racialized and autistic. It is now 10 years since his diagnosis. And for me, at the heart of being a mom is ensuring that he belongs and his rights are upheld. And when I think about my work in advocacy, it's always grounded in human rights. Like, what are those protected identities that are so important that we know there are continuous and persistent disparities that exist in terms of health, education, even employment? And what can we do in order to make change? And so those human rights are so important for me in terms of grounding my work. I need to be able to fall back on that so there's a leg to stand on. It's not based in emotion. It's not based on feeling. It's really rooted in law. It's rooted in those human rights. So, you know, for me, there are principles, there are life experiences, but I will always draw on the human rights in terms of my advocacy. In terms of tools, I really think that there needs to be done in community. Mm -hmm. There needs to be collective advocacy that happens. 
Doing it alone is, I found, not as successful or sustainable. So a principle is this idea of community and collective advocacy in terms of success and sustainability. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about collective advocacy and community, I was just thinking how important that is in a lot of spaces where particularly racialized women often are cleaning up messes, right? They're involved in spaces and places where perhaps the organization or the institution has left many things unsaid, many things unnoticed or untouched. And then here they are in this incredible leadership role that for many of us, we're excited because we've made it. And part of maybe the first year is a lot of cleanup. And so the advocacy at that point isn't about the innovation. It isn't about solutions. It's about sitting in that tension with people who have been harmed, who continue to mistrust the organization and, and so many other things. How do you find that collective? How do you build that community? Because I, I'm still struggling to find it. <laughs> like, where are they? <laughs> well, you're talking to somebody who's part of that, and I'm talking to you. So there's two of us right now. But you're right. It can be very lonely. Mm-hmm. It can be very lonely and isolating. And as I reflect on what you said, I think about trust. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And I'm thinking about who do I trust? Yeah. Who do I trust and how do I trust? And what is the risk of trusting? Yeah. For me, because I am a lone parent, my kiddos got me. Lots of extensive family. But my kiddos got me. I am always thinking about the risk in whatever I'm doing. What is the risk in terms of my job security? What is the risk in terms of my reputation? And how might any of my decisions impact my livelihood and my ability to be a mom? I feel like I'm not answering your question. I'm skirting around it. But I think that's the challenge. And some of the things I think about are Who might I share an affinity with? I think about my workplace or I think about my advocacy work in community. I think about who do I have an affinity with, whether that's their mom, whether that's their racialized mom, whether we have a specific interest around education or whatever that might be. What might be some of the affinities that we share? And then I assess it out. I'm going to share a little bit and I'm going to wait and see how much you are going to share. And then I might share a little bit more and I'll wait and see if you're going to share a bit more. And if you are closed off and you're not willing to share, I'm not sharing. <laughs> it's the sussing, sussing out of, I'm going to give you a little bit of me, but not everything. And let's see how much you give me. And I would say maybe there's a handful, maybe mm-hmm. a handful who have bit my little line in terms of sharing a little bit about me. But it's quite rare. It's quite rare. Yeah. Which makes the leadership 
really challenging mm-hmm. and yeah. isolating. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which goes against the very real change that needs to happen, right? It mm-hmm. sounds like in order for there to be scalable change that meets all of the commitments that many organizations are making, that there needs to be unity in action, unity in thought, unity in impact. And so if that ability to find individuals who truly want to come together and be unified in making those choices, if that action alone is difficult to do, what kind of real change actually happens? And I'm also reflecting on how exhausting that must be to be constantly navigating risks and constantly needing to protect yourself. And so my question is like, where do you draw the line? And do you draw the line? Can you draw the line? Three questions in one. Oh, where do I start? <laughs> Can I draw the line? Hmm. What were the other two? Unity. Let me speak to unity because from the 10,000 foot level, mm-hmm. I am like, we need to work collectively. I'll give you an example. In terms of disability and being a parent mm-hmm. of a child who has a disability, there is a spectrum of disabilities that exist physical, mm-hmm. invisible, cognitive, fine, so many. And all are entitled their rights as a, as a result of human rights. Yet each group is vying for different supports and resources. The scarcity mindset that exists creates this barrier for collective action. Many of us believe that there is not enough. For all of us and all of our needs. And so we live in this scarcity mindset where we're fighting each other as opposed to working together and advocating for change together. So I've seen that. If there's a way to name that scarcity model and to think of ways in which we don't have to continue to live in that and see where there might be opportunities for abundance, if we work together, I think that could be a way. That could be an entryway into bringing community and collective action together. In terms of where do I draw the line in terms of my own advocacy work or the trust building and relationship building, I'm quite practical and realistic. I'm a planner. And so for me, Brass tacks, it's my goals as a parent and a mom are central. What do I need financially? What type of energy do I need to continue to sustain me, to do all the things with him and for him? And then what do I need personally to sustain that? How is my health and well-being being supported? So I reflect on that quite a bit in terms of the decisions I make around work or even volunteering, how much of that is going to take away from some of the goals I have as a parent 
And how much of that is going to take away from the energy that I have to be able to be the kind of mom that I want to be. <laughs> and so it's not always black and white or black or white. It's sometimes fuzzy, but I listen to my body. <laughs> my body tells me. My body tells me when it is time to just say, no, thank you. What's the line? Thank you for considering me. I appreciate your thoughtfulness, but I'm going to have to graciously decline. Such truer words have never been said. <laughs> you know, I, I hear you. I, when you just shared how your body tells you, and there's a, a book that I've only recently discovered and, and wish I had come across it during my first burnout. And the book was, Your Body Keeps Score. And the reason why I, I, I raise it as a, an, an opportunity to reflect on and, and perhaps a book that those who are listening can read is because of what you've just shared. And that is when we're sometimes leading in spaces where the boundaries are being constantly crossed over and we're trying the very best to make the best decisions for ourselves and our family and navigating all of these risks and it goes and the list goes on and on it makes it quite challenging for us to sometimes make the best decision without our bodies taking over and giving us that sign and that clarity that enough is enough and I just think of how many women of color have to get to that particular stage or point in their career or life where their body takes over and they then have to take a leave of absence or they have to leave their role. And what I think you've shared for us is there is both an incredible opportunity that comes with advocacy and there's also a level of burden. Yeah, that the burden is real. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, the burden is so real. And I, I think back to when I might not have been in, I mean, we're all leaders, right? I, I understand mm -hmm. the ability to, to lead and there are specific roles with specific titles that maybe make you more of a leader to the external world. Mm -hmm. On paper. On paper. <laughs> because yeah. of a word. <laughs> and when we are advocates, and I'll speak specifically to advocating for racialized women mm -hmm. in leadership, Right. Yeah. There are lots of studies and research and more recently, more and more stats about the inequity when it comes to women in leadership, as well as women and the pay gap, specifically <laughs> racialized women. Right there. That disparity becomes even more pronounced when it's a, a racialized woman, when we're talking about leadership and salary, that gaps even wider. But the burden is you advocate you advocate for there to be more racialized women in leadership. And you acknowledge that and you bring that to the forefront. And then you advocate for greater equity in pay. 
across Mm -hmm. all women and then across all genders and all races. So you're advocating for racialized women to be in leadership and you're advocating for uh, racialized women to have equity and pay. And then this opportunity for you as a racialized woman comes up for you to be a leader (laughs) with more pay. (laughs) I feel like I know where this is going. And you feel like you have to take it. You feel like you have to say yes because you've been advocating for this but there's this hesitancy. And that hesitancy, in my own personal experience, is weighing the risks, is now weighing the personal risks. As part of the collective of racialized women who want equity in leadership roles and equity in pay, I am there. I am with you, yes. And then when that opportunity comes up, and it means you as an individual stepping into that, that's where I see the burden. Because I remember reflecting on the risks. What are the risks in taking on this leadership role? How will that impact me as a mom? How will that impact my own health and well being? And so there's that burden. There's that burden of carrying the collective. And then also continuing reflecting on the risks of being in a role, in a leadership position. Because we know, as I mentioned, it's definitely a lot more isolating. And you're there to Mm -hmm. fix a problem. You're there to clean Mm -hmm. up things. And just the security. I wonder about the security. I wonder about the security that exists for racialized women who move into leadership Mm -hmm. positions and what's the longevity of that there's a cool little study we should look at (laughs) right so hooray you are you've arrived racialized woman into your leadership position with a little more pay (laughs) yes oh that is for real (laughs) how long are you gonna last sometimes i wonder if there's like the puppeteer who's just okay let's put her in there let's see how long she'll last right (laughs) And, it, and sometimes mm. I feel like it's a maze, mm. right? You're in this maze. There's a sense of excitement at the beginning because you're discovering all these little nooks and crannies and walls. And it feels at first like it's a problem, something to be solved. It's a puzzle. And then wall upon wall upon wall. And it's, okay, where is the exit? Mm-hmm. Like, where is the opportunity where things start to actually get better? Mm-hmm. And... When you're in that maze by yourself, all the doubts, all the mindsets, everything kicks in. I can imagine with everything that you've shared today and for anyone who's listening and reflecting on the many questions and the heaviness of this topic. And I just want to acknowledge that I don't think I've had yet a conversation that isn't heavy. So I am also recognizing that the leadership journey of women of color and racialized women, it's, it's not cute bows and roses. It really isn't. And I'm also recognizing that it's okay to acknowledge that. Because mm-hmm. I think there's always this hope that uh, let's just find the optimistic spin. And it's hard to do an optimistic spin when you have such important 
values that are not always aligned with the systems that we find ourselves in. You've given us also some calls to action, Levon, around coming together as a collective, supporting each other, being there for each other. And I'm curious, what would you say to anyone who's in a similar position as you as a leader and as a mom? What advice would you give her? Do not carry this load alone, I think is really key. And have someone in your corner, a mentor, an auntie, a tita, have somebody. And make sure that you don't enter into this alone. I would say really think about your whole life, everything that makes up who you are, especially if you're a mom. I mentioned earlier that my calling as a mother influences my leadership. And I really do believe it's a calling. So that's really central to me. So in any work that I do, decisions that I make leadership, I'm always reflecting on my whole self, all the parts of me, not just the worker professional self. So spend some time reflecting on your whole self and how might the different tasks, roles, responsibilities that you're thinking of taking on will impact that. I would say, be really clear what you're advocating for. Yeah. And fully understand what that means. If you are advocating for racialized equity, be really clear about what that might mean within the organization or in the environment in which you work in. If it's about disability advocacy, similar. Know your stuff. Be able to articulate the cause, what you're advocating for, what are the different tools in which you might do this, who might you lean on in order to advocate for that specific group or cause that you're advocating for. So know your stuff. So important. And I would say conserve your energy. And I use the word energy quite liberally and holistically. So it could mean time, it could be your mood. So just conserve that energy and think about ways in which you are going to be able to sustain this because it's not a month journey. It's Mm -hmm. a lot. I am a racialized woman. I am forever going to be advocating, whether that's for myself or for others like me. I have a child who will probably be with me forever. I will be advocating for him and with him for as long as I live. So I need to be able to sustain that energy. My advocacy is not flavor of the month. This is my life and my livelihood. So I think it's important to reflect on, especially if you're advocating about or for something that is connected to your own identity. Think about your energy. Don't carry the load on your own. Be really clear and have that knowledge about what you're advocating for and why. And think about ways to sustain your energy and your advocacy work. Wow. Such incredible and important and also significant advice to really think about what can one do within their own control 
when sometimes the spheres of work and the scope of work isn't within our control. And so thank you, Levon, for your time. Thank you for being so giving of your experiences, your examples. It has been a pleasure sitting here and chatting with you and at times laughing, even when sometimes humor might not be the most appropriate <laughs> response. <laughs> and yet we find ourselves sometimes at those crossroads of who am I advocating for? And is this going to really truly serve me? Thank you for our time, Levon, and take care. You are welcome. Thank you. I recently attended a session at a conference where the groundbreaking research that was shared intrigued me and also sent me down a rabbit hole of discovery and unpacking the critical nexus between stress and leadership within the context of Black women. Dr. Cheryl Woods, Giscombe, visionary work on the superwoman schema conceived in 2010 has become a conceptual lens that I've been introspectively navigating throughout the development of this podcast and the conversation I had with Levon. This schema paints an intricate tapestry of five superwoman characteristics from projecting an illusion of unyielding strength to suppressing emotions and persisting at the expense of self, interspersed with four contextual factors, three perceived benefits, and three perceived liabilities. You can read more about the schema in the show notes. At its core, the superwoman schema underscores a palpable connection between an innate obligation to assist others, the struggle to establish boundaries, and the insidious health disparities that often manifest too late to address effectively. Sounds familiar? I know it does for me after experiencing burnout twice in my career. So what is the overarching implication? Well, it's succinct yet profound. And simply put, the show cannot go on. Conceptual frameworks like the superwoman archetyped, the twice-as-good ethos, or the relentless emotional toll exacted daily on women of color are fundamentally unsustainable foundations for leadership or role modeling. As we continue to unravel the profound value of our leadership, let's concurrently craft a paradigm shift one that recognizes our energy as both potent and finite, even when the spaces we lead in seem boundless. Let us redesign robust boundaries, prioritizing self-loyalty before extending it to others or any institution. This means taking apart the notion that perpetual caregiving should come before self-care. Reshaping our narrative to foster resilience rooted in well-being of integrating our body, mind, and soul. Lastly, let's embark on a collective journey of co-creation and soul nourishment through sisterhood and community. We need this. It demands discarding 
the scarcity mindset that often pervades relationships, and rather create relationships through fostering connections grounded in reciprocity and trust. This isn't just a call to action. It's an invitation to profoundly reimagine how we engage with one another and flourish without constant compromisation of who we are. That's the life we can live while we're also leading. There is an African proverb that says, once you carry your own water, you will learn the value of every drop. What is one thing, just one, you need to do today to hydrate and nourish yourself? Always remember, the world needs more of you being just you. As always, take care of yourself and see you soon.